0: All right, good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua chapter 4? We have been going through the book of Joshua here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday mornings. And today we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 4, which we actually started last time. And as we looked at last time in Joshua 4, the children of Israel have finally entered the Promised Land. God parted the, the waters of the Jordan River. And they went through on dry ground, and now they are finally in the promised land. And I say finally because you're probably thinking, well, it's about time too. I mean, we have been taking a long time looking at the principles, laying the foundation for this study on victorious Christian living. Now, we know the book of Joshua is historical, a matter of historical record. Well, we do believe, according to what Paul said in Romans 15, verse 4, that the things in the Old Testament were written for our learning. And I I get the impression Paul is not just saying our uh, learning about history. He's talking about principles that God has placed in these Old Testament stories and books that we can glean to help us live New Testament Christian lives. And so we have been taking our time with this book so far. Looking at the book of Joshua as an instruction manual on Victorious Christian Living, I realize that some of you might be growing impatient. I mean, we have been in the book now for 12 weeks, and we still haven't seen them fight their first battle against the enemy. And while I understand your frustration, I'm going to ask you to be patient just a little while longer, which is exactly what the Lord expected from Israel. Once he led them into the promised land, before he led them to their first battle against the enemy, He first made them set up camp in a place they would later call Gilgal. And Gilgal is going to become very important to the children of Israel in the weeks and months and even years to come. It's going to be their base of operations, their headquarters, from which they're going to launch their attacks against the enemy. But before they take on their first battle, which is going to be Jericho, right now God brings them to this place where he wants to teach them some very important lessons before leading them into their first battle. You know, as I read this, it's very interesting to me how that God is never in a hurry when it comes to his purposes for our lives. You know, we're so busy wanting to rush out and do for God. And what God is really interested in is working in us before he works through us, right? I mean, God has taught us that he can use a donkey to do his work. He doesn't need any of us. It's no big deal for God to use a donkey or, you know, anyone to do any act of service for him. What really takes time, not that it's hard for God, but it does take time, and that is for God to work in the heart to build a whole new character. Because once we get saved, we're a brand new creation now. Old things don't immediately end or stop and new things all of a sudden start, it's kind of a transitional process, isn't it? Certainly some old things pass away right there. But there's a lot of other things, a lot of baggage that we carry into our Christian lives that God is wanting then to begin to work to give us the grace to get rid of this stuff. He's transitioning us from the old life in Adam, which was a selfish, worldly kind of a life, into the selfless, Christ-centered life of the Spirit. And that takes time. We, of course, we are all about doing. Don't get me wrong. God is, concern, is concerned about what we do for Him, but He's much more concerned about what we are for Him. And that's why the Lord had them camp in Gilgal for, for several days before leading them into the battle of Jericho. He wanted to teach them some things first, important lessons, and to take some time to get them focused properly. See, they were in the land now, right? mean it's been a long time coming hasn't it for some of these people it's been 40 years as they were born in the wilderness pretty much at the time the wandering started and for all those years they were I think sustained their their um, hope was sustained by stories of how God was going to eventually lead them into this good land well now they're in the land I'm convinced that when they enter that land all they were looking for are those were those blessings where are those vineyards we didn't plant? We want to eat from those things. How about those wells that we didn't have to dig? We want to drink from those. How about those houses we didn't build? We want to live in those. All the blessings God promised them. And what is God doing in Gilgal? Well, I think one of the things he's doing is he is, first of all, trying to get their eyes off the blessings and get them focused on the blesser. That's a big lesson for all of us, right? Right. And even those of us who really love the Lord and don't want to focus on material things or blessings, sometimes we do find ourselves, you know, shifting our focus away from Him onto what He's going to do for us or what He's going to give to us. And so I think God was trying to say, look, get your eyes off the land, all right? Look at me. Keep focused on me because there are some important lessons I need to teach you before I lead you into your first battle. And I think that's one of the things God was wanting to do right here is to get them focused on him. You know, Alan Redpath, great man of God, in his commentary on the book of Joshua, he gives six lessons that God is teaching us as we read the story, principles that come out of the story that we can glean and apply into our Christian lives. He uh, lists six lessons that God is teaching us at Gilgal that we need to learn and apply into our lives before we take on our enemies, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are important lessons. I'm going to use his six points. I'm going to add my own commentary, though. And today we're just going to look at the first one. First of all, Gilgal was a place of remembrance. A place of remembrance. In verse 19, we read, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, And they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you, until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let me refresh your memory. As God parted the, Red, the, uh, the Jordan River, all right, as he had parted the Red Sea, The people walked through on dry ground. Joshua instructed 12 guys, probably one guy from each of the 12 tribes, to each take a good-sized rock from the wilderness side of the Jordan and place it in the Jordan River bed. And then Joshua took 12 stones from the Jordan River bed, not those same ones, of course, and he put them on the Promised Land side of the Jordan He set them up into a memorial. And of course, after the children of Israel passed through, and they were all over into the Promised Land. God allowed the waters of the Jordan to resume, covering the 12 stones from the wilderness. And now all that was left was the 12 stones from the Jordan that had been set up in the Promised Land side of the Jordan River. What does all this mean? Well, we've already talked about this. The Jordan River was a symbol of death. The 12 stones represented the 12 tribes, the old life in the wilderness, now buried in death in the Jordan, and out of death came resurrection life. That's what the promised land represents. Resurrection life. See, they were saved when they came out of Egypt. But in the wilderness, although saved, they were still very carnal, weren't they? And now they're entering into a brand new phase of the relationship with God and their walk with God. And that is that they're going from carnality... The carnal self-life, which is all about murmuring, complaining, and lusting, and so on. And now they're entering into a brand new life, the life of the Spirit, which is what the promised land for us represents. So Joshua sets up these 12 stones, and they now become a memorial. This is going to be the first of many memorials that God's people are going to erect in the promised land. You say, well, what was the purpose of these memorials? Well, they served as reminders of important events that took place on the spot where they were set up. In this case, this memorial reminded them of God's faithfulness in keeping his word and bringing them into the good land which he had promised to give them. Remember, this is the promise that sustained them through all the years in the wilderness. And now God has fulfilled that promise. This generation would need to remember the faithfulness of God in keeping his promise to them in the past because it would strengthen them for all the battles that they would face in the present and the future. So it was important for them to remember how faithful God had been. Very important. You see, just because they were now in the promised land didn't mean they could kick back and relax. Uh, Now is when the real work began. The road ahead of them was going to be very tough and the enemy very tenacious. And there were going to be many times when they were going to be discouraged they were going to grow tired and weary and probably want to give up and by returning to Gilgal on a regular basis which they would do of course because it was their base of operations they would see the stones and then be reminded once again of how faithful God had been how powerful he was in bringing them through the Jordan River by a miracle he parted that river like he did the Red Sea how powerful our God is how faithful he is What would that do? Well, it would encourage them for the present. Because after all, now they're facing now some pretty formidable enemies. But as they remind themselves of how faithful God had been in the past in keeping his word, well, there's no reason to doubt that God is not going to be faithful now, right? In keeping his promise to us, in giving us complete victory. He's brought us into the land, but now we have to trust him to give us complete victory over the peoples of this land. And they needed to keep focused on God and on his faithfulness, which is what these memorial stones would help them to do. Look, it's good to remember the works of the Lord in your life and time past, especially when you grow weary and discouraged. And look, we are facing difficult times. And I think more and more, guys, as things get tougher, crazier, I mean, we're living in crazy times, as everything around you seems to be out of control in some way. All the things that we as Americans have built our lives upon, some of that stuff is crumbling even as we speak. These are difficult times in a lot of ways. I think the spiritual warfare is ratcheting up like I've never seen before. We have to keep reminding ourselves of how faithful God has been to us, how trustworthy he is. Hey, our God is on the throne, and there is nothing hard for him. We need to constantly remind ourselves how he's worked in the past because that will give us strength for the present and the future. Just recently, Cindy and I did this. We were talking uh, one evening, kind of reminiscing on how God has been so faithful to us over the years. And, you know, when we got into ministry, I mean, early on, I mean, the church was very small and money was very tight. And as we've said before, there were a lot of times when we didn't know where the mortgage payment was coming from, we, we didn't know how we were going to you know make ends meet. And we never let anybody know our needs, but we always just prayed. And God always, always came through. It was amazing. I mean, you know, our God is faithful. And it's good to remind ourselves of that because it strengthens our faith for the challenges and the trials we face today. Turn to Psalm 77. And let's pick it up in verse 10. Listen to what the psalmist said. Now he's going through something pretty severe. He begins in verse 10 by saying, and I said, this is my anguish. He's talking about the the difficult time he was going through, whatever trial that was. This is my anguish, okay? This is my problem. This is what I'm experiencing. But here's what I'm going to do. I will remember the years of the right hand of the most high i will remember the works of the lord surely i will remember your wonders of old i also will meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds hey you know what it's good to remind yourself when you're going through difficult times how good god has been how faithful he's been and it's not a bad idea to talk to yourself about it too and i will talk of your deeds i mean I'm going to talk to people about how good you've been. I'm going to talk to myself. You say, is that acceptable? Sure, as David said, I think it was Psalm 40. He said, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Don't you hope in God? What's wrong with you? Talking to himself, right? Why are you so depressed? Shame on you. I mean, God's always come through for us, hasn't he? He's faithful. He's going to get us through this. I'm going to again sing his praises. He's going to work this out. Turn to Psalm 143. And again, pick it up in verse 3. Listen to what the psalmist said here. He said, for the enemy has persecuted my soul. This could be a physical enemy or it might be the devil himself. We don't know. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. It's a pretty grim place to be in. Talk about a darkness surrounding you. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is distressed. All right? I'm pretty down. Okay? I'm feeling pretty low. So what am I going to do? Well, I could run to the medicine cabinet and get my volume out. I could, uh, you know, I could uh, you know, buy uh, some alcohol and get drunk. Of course, that's not what children of God do. That's what the world does. Here's what the psalmist said. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remember the days of old. I'm going to remember... Times in my life when things were really going great and God was blessing. Because I know that even though I go through dark valleys, there's light at the end of the tunnel. One of our Calvary pastors was going through a real difficult time. He's a, he's a riot. And, and um, his wife said, well, honey, there's, there, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. He said, yeah, but it's a train. <laughs> That's how we feel sometimes. you know. He was, he was kidding, of course. But God's going to get us through this. I'm going to remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. See, God used memorials in the Old Testament to do this very thing, to kind of elicit in the people a remembrance, remembering how God had worked in the past. And he, of course, had them erect many of these memorials to remind his people in the Old Testament primarily of all that he had done for them, that they would be... Strengthening their faith. Now, the Lord has even given to us in the New Testament a memorial for the church for us to remember him by and all that he's done for us. It's called the Lord's Supper, which Jesus commanded us to, and I'm quoting him now, do this in what? Remembrance of me. It's important that we remember what God has done for us. You know, I look at this place, okay, the place where we come together for church. I look at this place as our spiritual Gilgal. This is our base of operations, isn't it? This is where we come, uh, having been in the world all week, you know, and going through battles and all kinds of things. And sometimes we drag ourselves in here, tired, uh, weary, battle-worn, right? Sometimes you don't even feel like coming. That's the worst thing you can do. The time when you feel like coming the least because you're so beat up and you're so weary and discouraged and tired of fighting the battles of the Lord that you want to sit home and just veg out and feel sorry for yourself, don't do that. Because this is a place of remembrance. What do I mean? Well, we come together, we sing God's praises, right? And as we're singing God uh, hymns and praises, it's reminding us again of his power, his greatness, and his goodness. As we open his word and we study, it reminds us once again of his promises and his faithfulness and so on, right? And then as we fellowship with each other, think about that. As we fellowship with each other and we begin to tell each other, well, here's what God did In my life this week, oh, I was going through this and I prayed and here's how God worked it out. What is that doing? That's encouraging my heart as I hear how God's working in your life. It's good for us to come together. This is our spiritual Gilgal, a place where we come and we are reminded of how good God is. That strengthens us. That's very important. That's why it's so important that we not forsake the fellowship of the saints in the local church because that in part is what the purpose of the local church is to encourage one another. All right, well, Gilgal, uh, this place where the memorial stones were set up, was first of all going to be a testimony or a remembrance to that generation that entered the promised land, the adults. But it was also going to be a testimony or reminder to the children of the next generation. Look at verse 6. God goes on to say that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean? Mom, Dad, what are these stones here all set up and things? What does this mean? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of the of Israel forever. See, God wanted these memorials to be erected in part to create curiosity in the hearts of the children that would cause them to ask questions, which could become teaching moments for the parents to relate to the kids how faithful God had been. See, God knew very well, of course he did, that the time to teach people where they're most open and their hearts are most pliable to the truth of God is when they're young. If you don't teach your kids when they're young about the Lord, well, as they grow up, their hearts become more solidified in whatever worldly pursuits or ideologies or whatever it might be that they're embracing. I mean, if you don't teach your kids when they're young about the Lord and you turn them over to the world and to the world's music and the world's television, It's going to do all the bad stuff that the Word of God would have protected them from. Turn to Psalm 78. And listen to what the psalmist says here about this very thing. Starting in verse 4, the psalmist said, We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He has done. Verse 6 that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they might uh, may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, listen, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. You hear what God is saying. God is saying, I want you to teach your kids diligently. Didn't God say this in Deuteronomy 6? You're to teach your kids diligently about me. When you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, write my word on the doorposts and lintel and gates of your house. Because surround your children with my word and my ways, so that when they grow, their love for me will grow and their obedience. And you know what? That they can pass it on to their children. Because if you don't lay a good, solid foundation, God is saying, you're going to breed rebellion. Rebellion is bound up in the heart of a child, right? You don't have to teach a kid to be rebellious. It's bound up in their hearts to the old fallen nature that they received from Adam at birth. What we have to do is train that out of them as parents. We have to give them the word of God, which is light, and light is always more powerful than darkness. And if you fill your kids' minds and hearts with God's word, his truth, his light, it will push out the darkness of the old nature and it will replace that old character with a brand new one, a heart that, is, that loves God and is given over to him. Anyways, that's what a memorial was supposed to do. Remind the adults of some important event that they should not forget what God did and to provoke curiosity in the minds of the children so that they would ask questions and then could be taught by their parents what these special monuments or days memorialized. We have these things in America. We've learned, of course, I think every culture has learned the importance of this. We have both religious and secular memorials and even holidays that we've uh, enacted that remind us of certain things, certain important events. We have uh, special dates like Thanksgiving and Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, We have secular holidays like Memorial Day, Independence Day, and all across this nation we have monuments that have been erected to very uh, courageous people and special events that parents will make pilgrimages to. You know, on vacation you go to Mount Rushmore or you go to uh, Washington, D.C. or some other place. We've taken our kids when they were little to historic Williamsburg where they learned history. We've been down to, um, to Lincoln's home and we're... Uh, Lincoln lived and worked uh, here in Illinois. I mean, these are memorials that you want your kids to to see and to understand uh, what they mean to the founding and the perpetuation of our nation. Important. This is what God had his people do, that the kids would not forget how good the Lord had been to them. You know, Thanksgiving used to be a day when we set aside to do that very thing a day of thanksgiving, you know, it's become so secularized that many schools teach that Thanksgiving is a day when the pilgrims gave thanks to the Indians. That's not what happened at all. They gave thanks to God who sustained them and who allowed them to come to a land where they could practice their faith in him freely. And it wasn't easy to begin to settle in this country. It was a harsh environment, uh, and, and many people died. And yet God was faithful in keeping it going. And it was a time when our nation used to really take Thanksgiving Day seriously. Today, well, it's a day that we come together, eat a lot of food, and watch football all day. It's kind of lost its significance. But these were things that God had built into his people, Israel, that they should do these very things. And they had feast days and holidays as well. You can read Leviticus 23, God gave seven to Moses, that the children of Israel might remember him and celebrate what he had done. All right, well, once again, these memorial stones, first of all, were a testimony or a remembrance to that generation, the adults. Secondly, God wanted them there to be a testimony to the next generation and beyond. But thirdly, and finally, they were to be a testimony to the whole world. Look at verse 24 once again. That all the peoples of the earth may know. The hand of the Lord, that it is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. These stones became a testimony to the entire world, in that area of course, of how powerful the God of Israel really was. How he had brought these people out of Egypt with a mighty outstretched arm, sustained them for 40 years in the wilderness where their their sandals didn't even wear out and then parts the Jordan like he did the Red Sea to bring them into this promised land and to give them victory over all the enemies that live there. That was a pretty powerful testimony to God's existence and power in the lives of his people. Well, what about us today as Christians? Well, obviously we don't go to the Jordan, right? and take stones to set up to be a memorial to the people of the world of how powerful and how real God is in our lives. But that doesn't mean that the world is without memorial stones of sorts that testify to the reality of God's faithfulness either. You see, just as Joshua built a memorial out of real stones to be a testimony to the world back then, even so, our Joshua, who is, of course, Jesus Christ, is building a memorial today not made up of or made out of literal stones, but made out of living stones. These stones are called the church which the Bible says is a holy temple that God is building up with living stones, real lives to be a memorial to him and a testimony to the world of his great power and existence. First Peter chapter 2, I'll give you two verses, verse 5 and 9. Listen to what Peter said along these lines. He said, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are living stones. We are the new memorial stones those that have been taken from death, the death that was in Adam, and we have now been given new life in Christ, and as such, our lives become living memorial stones, living testimonies to the world that God is real, that God is powerful, and that God can take a life that everyone else says is worthless, useless, and God can take that person's life And he can recreate that life and make it something brand new, right? Let me tell you this. We can talk about the Lord all day long, but there is nothing more powerful than a changed life to really drive home the reality to an unbeliever that God is real. I mean, some of our testimonies are more dramatic than others, right? I mean, some of us, our testimony isn't all that dramatic, but there are some people, many people, whose lives were so bad so dysfunctional, so so destroyed by sin that even their families had written them off as being a lost cause. And when God works in a person's life like that, and he saves them and transforms them, the world just sits up and has to take notice of that. I mean, I have heard stories from secular professionals who have studied the lives of criminals. We know what's going on. They don't know what's going on. They're unbelievers. All they know is you got a person one day whose life is a total wreck, and then all of a sudden overnight, he or she is a brand new person, and they can't figure that out. It doesn't make sense. How, how is that possible? We know it's possible because of the new birth, right? And I tell you what, The people that are the most lost, the most hopeless, when God saves them, their witness is the most powerful, isn't it? They become real, living stones of testimony. I think of some of our own Calvary pastors and some of the testimonies I have heard from their lives. I think of Pastor Mike McIntosh, which pastors Horizon Christian Fellowship in San Diego, a Calvary affiliate. If you've ever read Mike's biography, For the Love of Mike, He talked about how that, you know, he was kind of a good-hearted, kind of an easy-going kind of guy, beach bum, you know, into drugs, just wanting to have a good time. And Mike said, you know, I took so many drugs, and back then LSD was a big one, and he said, you know, I took, I dropped so much acid that I actually destroyed neurologically my brain. I got so bad that my wife left me, even my Parents and my family wrote me off. I mean, I went to psychiatrists. I went to professionals. Nobody could help me. They basically cut me loose and said, this guy's a lost cause. He's hopeless. And then somebody took Mike to church one night at Calvary Chapel where he heard the gospel and he got saved. And they said, if anyone would like to go back to the prayer room to have the elders lay hands on you to pray over you, that you might receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, the prayer room is there. So Mike said he walked back there and some guys laid their hands on him and prayed over him and he said he felt like a jolt of electricity shot through his body at that instant. And at that very instant, God completely healed him of all neurological damage, put him in his right mind again. All the flashbacks were were over because he had LSD flashbacks, terrible flashbacks. And Mike went on to become the pastor of one of the largest churches in America. He's been all over the world preaching the gospel. Contrast Mike McIntosh with another Calvary Chapel pastor, Raul Reese. Now, Mike was a sweet beach bum. Raul was a vicious, kind of a gangbanger type of a guy. His dad was an alcoholic, abusive, would uh, beat Raul and abandon him and all kinds of... Raul grew up with such rage that he said he actually joined the Vietnam War because he wanted to kill people legally. He was so filled with rage. He became an expert in Kung Fu. He said, I just wanted to hurt people. I just had so much anger and rage inside me. I just wanted to hurt people. Well, he married a gal, Sharon, who had grown up in a Christian home. Her parents were missionaries in Chile. She was backslidden, of course. Raul was not a believer. And so she marries Raul, and he puts her through hell. I mean, literally. I mean, I forgot how many years they were married, but it was it was terrible. And of course, Sharon came back to the Lord pretty quickly because she had to be on her knees. This was a horrible, horrible situation. Ra was abusive. He was cheating on her. And finally, she could take no more. I don't know, four or five years down the road, she could take no more. So she packed her bags and the kids' bags, put them by the door. Ra was out somewhere drinking, sleeping around, who knows what. And that evening, the church was meeting down the road there for a service. And so she took the kids down there to have the elders pray over her because she needed strength for what she was about to do. While she was down at church, Raul comes home. He sees the bags packed. He knows what's going to happen because she's been threatening to leave him. And he told her, if you ever leave me, nobody else will ever have you. Nobody else will ever be a father to my kids. So he sees the bag sitting there. He knows what she's planning on doing. He goes into the bedroom, goes into the closet, gets his shotgun, loads it, sits on the couch, waiting for them to come home. He said, my plan was, as soon as they walked through that door, I was going to kill my wife and my kids and kill myself and end this whole thing. While he was waiting, he decided to watch a little TV. He turns on the TV, and in the providence of God, here is Pastor Chuck Smith, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, on the TV, preaching the gospel. Raul listens, and the Spirit of God pierces his heart. He gets on his knees. When Chuck says, if anyone would like to receive Jesus Christ, you can pray with me right now, Raul gets on his knees and prays right there to receive Christ. Once he prayed that prayer and said, in Jesus' name, amen, he said, I got up off my feet, and I was a different person. I felt all the hatred, all the anger, all the rage just drain out of me. And I felt God's love beginning to fill my heart. Well, Raul also went on to become a very dynamic pastor of a church of many thousands of people. He also has been all around the world preaching the gospel. You don't think the world looks at men like this? They don't. I'm not saying they agree with what these guys have become. But they can't deny something powerful has taken place. Guys like this, women like this, I tell you what, they become powerful, powerful memorials the power of God to transform a life I'll tell you again the most powerful witness a person can ever have about the reality of God is a transformed life to see somebody that was so far gone that nobody thought there was any hope for them and to see God take a person like that save them transform them I mean that is something the world has to at least acknowledge something miraculous has happened we are living stones being built up by the Holy Spirit into a holy habitation for God, a spiritual temple. There's a sad footnote to the story of Gilgal. That memorial that was erected there, that for many years the children of Israel would make pilgrimages to, I'm sure that they took the kids and made a picnic out of it so they could tell the kids once again the, the story behind it. Well, gradually that memorial lost its spiritual significance to succeeding generations. And instead of seeing it as a memorial to the power of God, where they would then praise God for what he did, it became a shrine where the children of Israel actually began to worship pagan deities right there in Gilgal. You know, there is something very, very sad about a church, which again is a memorial, right? Something very sad about a church that was once on fire for God, that was once used so powerfully by God to be a testimony to the world around it of God's power and existence. It's so sad to see churches that have that kind of a history, a place where people would come and they would be immediately ushered into the presence of God. It would worship God, right? To see those same churches slowly dying, and some of them have completely died, I'll give you one example. This was not a church, but it's a good example. Do you know that colleges like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and I think Dartmouth were all founded by Christians for the purpose of training men for the ministry? You realize that? Do you realize that Harvard was founded, and it's in their charter, that they were founded to be a place where men could be trained for the ministry? I was listening to um, an apologist, Christian apologist, say that he gave a lecture there in Harvard. And he said, I happened to walk by the chapel before I gave my lecture. He said, all the Christian symbols had either been removed or covered up, and there was a witch's coven having a meeting there in the sanctuary. That's what we're talking about, right? You know how many churches have given up on the word of God, really? Oh, well, they give it lip service, though, but they're really not teaching it anymore, certainly not pressing upon their people to live it. And they have filled their churches with all kinds of New Age baloney. And they're really worshiping, not the God of the Bible anymore, but a kind of a New Age God. Once a witness for the Lord, now a place of pagan idolatry. And how sad that is to see it. What caused this? What happened to the nation that they had slid so far away from the place that they started? Well, turn to Judges chapter 2. Let's pick it up, first of all, in verse 8. Judges 2, verse 8. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. Verse 10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. It seems that the parents got too busy enjoying all the blessings and material things, the physical prosperity of the land, and it turned their hearts away from the Lord, and they never bothered to pass along a godly heritage to their children. You know, physical blessings can be a curse. This is what God told his people before they entered the land. He said, I'm about to lead you into a good land, a land that is well watered, A land of blessing, again, where you're going to drink from wells you didn't dig and eat from vineyards you didn't plant and live in houses you didn't build. But I'm warning you not to forget me when you enter into this good land because, and I'm paraphrasing, all the prosperity. See, in the wilderness, they had to trust God every day for their what? Daily bread for water? That was a walk of faith, wasn't it? Now God was bringing them into a land where they didn't have to pray every day for their daily bread. It was a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And you know what? When you have that kind of blessing and physical prosperity, you don't have to depend on God. And if you allow yourself, it will begin to cause you to drift from God. And when that happens, apostasy sets in, or apathy I should say, then apathy leads to apostasy, apostasy leads to idolatry. And in the process, nobody's teaching the kids about the Lord. And so when the generation that came out of, uh, excuse me, when the generation that entered the promised land under Joshua all died out, the kids, the ones that God said, look, I want your kids to know about me. Teach them. Parents never did. The kids grew up, they didn't know the Lord. And they gave themselves over to idolatry. I want you just to turn to Deuteronomy 6. Read a couple more passages and we'll close. I've actually just kind of made alluded to these, but let me show it to you out of the scriptures. In Deuteronomy chapter six, let's pick it up at verse ten. Again, God is warning them about what was going to happen if they did not stay close to Him once they entered into this good land. He said in verse ten, "So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Turn to chapter 8, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. This is Moses now warning them. Lest when you have eaten and are full, and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which fiery serpents and scorpions and and thirsty land where there was no water who who brought water for you out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, never saw that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Verse 17, listen. Then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He swore to your fathers as it is this day. You know, I can't help but read that without seeing America in these verses. I think that America was intended by God to be a modern-day Israel in the sense that as God chose Israel to be a light to the world and blessed them like no other nation was ever blessed, God also took our forefathers out of bondage, brought them across an ocean, and planted them in a good land, much like the land of Israel, a land of prosperity, a land of plenty. And initially, we were very thankful, as Israel was, right? Initially, they were very thankful for what God had done, just like our forefathers were. But after a while, our nation got used to the blessings. We became self-sufficient. We didn't have to trust God every day. We became self-sufficient. And after a while, this is what God says here, after a while, just like Israel, we began to say, no, it wasn't God. It was our hard work, our ingenuity. Our system of capitalism, and I'm not against capitalism, but it can become an idol just like anything else. We've done this. It wasn't God. We did this. We are wealthy because of our hard work and ingenuity. And God says, Don't forget who gives you the power to get wealth. It is me. And just like Israel forgot their God and got so far into idolatry that God finally had to wipe the nation out. And then, of course, He brought them back at one point, but I see America going down that same road. That same road. What does God have to do to get our attention? We become proud, arrogant, self-sufficient, ungrateful. What does God have to do? And if God does bring our nation down, I'm not so sure he's going to ever bring it back up again. I think we're done. We need to pray. We need to pray and we need to remind ourselves Everything we have is a gift from God. And he owes us nothing. We owe him everything. We are not entitled to the least of his blessings. This entitlement mentality, forget about it. Everything he gives us is a gracious gift. It's not something we earn or deserve or are entitled to. And I think that that eats away at a heart of gratitude when you think you have something coming. It's not a gift. It's my due. We need to stop thinking that we deserve everything. We're entitled to everything. And we begin to get on our knees and humbly thank God for all he has given to us. And at any time could take away from us if we don't stop getting our eyes on the physical prosperity and not on the Lord himself. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Lord, we are not worthy of the least of your mercies. We thank you that, Lord, in Christ, you've given us all things. We praise you, Lord, that you've opened our eyes to the truth. We thank you that you've delivered us from darkness into your marvelous light. We praise you, God, for being so good to us. Lord, you don't, we don't deserve anything, yet you have given us everything. And, Lord, thank you. Give us grace not to begin to feel, if we don't already, that we deserve these things. And all the while, Lord, you're saying, are you kidding me? Every beat of your heart is a gift from me. Every breath you take is a gift from me. Who gives you power to get wealth? It's me. Who gives you strength to live every day? That's me too. Thank you, Lord, for being so gracious to us. And continue to teach us the lessons of Gilgal, that we might apply them into our lives and move forward, Lord, in a victorious life for your glory. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.